0: Following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Well, this morning I want to talk about love. <laughs> I did not expect an artisan woo for love, but I love love. And I love that you love love. It's good. Um, man, love is one of those things that makes you just a little bit, get a little weird sometimes, and I've also had a lot of uh, cough syrup this week, so I'll be honest with you, I'm not quite sure where we're going to end up here today, but (laughs) will you agree to come along with me and not fire me if I get too weird? (laughs) Um, Laughing means yes, so love has been on my mind a lot lately. Anybody who is here at our event on Wednesday night where we talked about gender, sexuality, and inclusion in the church... Um, we talked on Wednesday about radical Christian love, and one of the things that I said was that there is no temperate version of Christian love. There is no kind of loving like Christ. Christian love is radical by definition. It doesn't come in degrees. It's it's all or nothing, and it's not nothing. We talked about how uh, we need to extend and practice radical Christian love as we think about people who are different from us, particularly in their gender identity or sexual orientation. We talked about how we have to extend radical Christian love to people who have different convictions than we do, people who hold different interpretations of the scripture than, than we have. And we're committed to that as well. And we talked about extending radical Christian love to ourselves. And some people, I know for a fact because you've told me, for some people this is the hardest type of love to practice. Uh, Because you've been told, maybe even especially in churches, your whole life that you are not worthy of love and that you are somehow unlovable or less lovable than other people. And I consider it my pastoral duty to tell you that that's not true, that God loves you fully and completely and radically, and that I love you, and that our community is going to work together to love each other and love everyone well. So love has been on my mind. But what, you may be wondering, does that have to do with the atonement, (laughs) We've been talking about the atonement for several weeks now, this really kind of dense and um, heady theological concept, trying to make it uh, understandable and real and meaningful to ourselves, and I think we've done some good work. So what does love have to do with atonement, other than the fact that both of those things have been heavy on my mind lately? Well, maybe nothing, I don't know. But I, I want to try and say that maybe the answer is Jesus. We know the answer is always Jesus, right? Anybody who grew up in Sunday school, right? The answer was always Jesus. So Jesus is, of course, the one who teaches us about love. Jesus is the one who says when a lawyer comes and tries to trick him by asking him to pick one of the commandments of the law as the greatest, he says that's easy. The greatest commandment is to love God. And not just a little bit, but with everything you've got, your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strengths. And because Jesus always seems to give you a little bit more than you asked him to give you, he said, by the way, there's another commandment. It's a little bit like the first one. You should love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, on these two commandments, we can hang all of the law and the prophets which was his way of saying all of the scriptures. Everything hangs on those two commandments, to love God with everything we have and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Jesus is the one who says in one of his sermons, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And by the way, that is not the teaching of the Jewish law. But I think it's probably true that his listeners had heard that said, that you should love your neighbors or and and hate your enemies. But I say to you, said Jesus, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Jesus is the one who said in one of his sermons, You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, which, by the way, was the was part of the Jewish law, but it was not a vindictive kind of justice, it was a limiting justice, it was a kind of justice that said, you poke me in the eye, Dewey, I'm going to come after you and poke out both of your eyes and probably pull out some of your hair and punch you in the jaw too, because that's how angry I'm going to be. And the, the, the Jewish law said, no, one eye for one eye, one tooth for one tooth, one cow broken leg for another cow broken leg, right? Jesus said, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, if anybody smacks you in the face on one cheek turn the other cheek to him also that is why I say Christian love is radical because the love that Jesus taught and commanded is radical radical Christian love Jesus is the one who says this is my commandment that you love one another And then identifies what he means and explains it by saying, no one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. And that's where Jesus didn't just teach about love, but he actually modeled it and lived out what he was saying. He lived out that last part about laying down one's life for one's friends. Combined it with his teaching about love your enemies because he laid down his life at the hands of his enemies. As a matter of fact, when one of his disciples, Peter, the passionate one, sliced off the ear of one of the people who came to arrest Jesus, Jesus said, enough, Peter, put that away. And in one of the tellings of the story, he even reached out and, and healed the ear that had been sliced off. Peter wanted to resort to violence and Jesus resorted to love. Like a lamb being led to slaughter. And when Jesus was wrongly accused and falsely condemned and ultimately ultimately murdered by that great dual evil of religion conspiring with government as he went to his death he responded not with hatred not with violence not with retribution not with an army of angels which he could have called down had he wanted to not even with any kind of protest but with submission and forgiveness father forgive them they don't know what they are doing that is radical love That is Christian love. Radical Christian love is love that doesn't make any sense. It's love that in theory should not work. It's the kind of love that makes people say, you would have to be off your rocker to do that. Don't you know what will happen to you? Did you know, by the way, That the early Christian believers were, without any notable exceptions, pacifists. (laughs) Speaking of off your rocker, right? They engaged in complete nonviolence. When they were being kidnapped, held hostage, and publicly executed in the most gruesome of ways, burned alive, decapitated, fed to wild animals in a public arena. Do you see what I'm hinting at here? When they were being kidnapped and murdered in ways that are every bit as gruesome and disturbing as what we see on the news with ISIS today, Do you know how they responded? Not with a 9mm, not with an AR 15, not with a drone strike, not with a jet, not with an atomic bomb, not with a sword, not with a fist, not even in most cases with any words. They responded the way that their Lord had responded with love and forgiveness and submission to the point of death. That is radical Christian love. That is love that doesn't make any sense. If the early Christians, let's say that they had... um, in the course of trying to found and establish their movement, had hired a religion-founding consultant. (laughs) And asked him, Hey, we're trying to found this religion here, and the people keep taking us and killing us. What do you think we should do about that? Do you think that the religion-building consultant... Of the first century would have suggested, eh, I think you should let them do it." <laughs> that is not a way for a movement to gain traction, to have its adherents killed in large groups. And yet that is what they did, because they were living out the calling and example, following the example of Christ radical Christian love so now once again the question that I asked 10 minutes ago what does love have to do with the atonement other than the fact that I've been thinking about them both a lot lately well considering the teachings of Jesus maybe you would be willing to do a little thought experiment with me would that be okay? okay There's no harm in thinking about something, and actually I will stress ahead of time that I don't actually believe some of what I'm about to say, but it's a thought experiment. I think it might help answer the question of how love and atonement um, are connected to one another. So here's the thought experiment. For some of you, this won't be a thought experiment, but um, for me it is. Let's say that Jesus was not, in fact, the Son of God, but that he was what most secular people today say that he was, just a human teacher. Let's say he did not rise from the dead. The whole thing was a farce. Somebody stole the body. They made it up. Let's say that he never performed any miracles. Maybe he was an illusionist. Right? Maybe he tricked people. Maybe they made the whole thing up about that too. Let's say that the whole thing is untrue except for what his moral teaching was. The stuff about loving your enemies and turning the other cheek and laying down one's life for one's friends. That's the thought experiment. Now go with me a little bit further. Let's say that everyone in this room agreed to live by those teachings, which, let's be honest, are really rather ridiculous. What would our little community look like if we all loved our neighbors as ourselves? If we all loved our enemies and prayed for them? If we practice radical Christian love? What if we really did the other stuff that he taught? I didn't even get into this. About giving to everyone who's in need and offering two coats when they need one. All the rest of it. Would our community begin to change, do you think? What if everybody in the city of Rochester obeyed those moral teachings of Jesus? What would happen to our city? Imagine, imagine if the whole state of New York, now I know this is hard because of Manhattan and Wall Street and all the hipsters in Brooklyn, but imagine if the whole state of New York simultaneously started to put Jesus' teachings into practice. Remember, just his teaching, none of the quote-unquote spiritual stuff. What if all the politicians in Washington, D.C. began to vote in accordance with, With the law of love. What if the commander in chief made all the decisions of war in a way that was consistent with the teachings of the Prince of Peace? Do you think the last drone strike would have happened? Do you think the first Gulf War would have happened? Do you think Oh god, do you think that 130,000 people would have had their lives snuffed out in a week in August of 1945 if President Truman had been acting like President Jesus? What if the whole world just obeyed the teachings Of the Lord Jesus. And by the way. Lord Jesus for us today. Is just a pretty little spiritual thing. Oh Lord. I just love you so much Lord. The title. Lord. Given to Jesus. Was a deeply subversive. Political title at the time. Because the the only one who should have been called Lord. Was Caesar. Caesar. It's like saying he's president Jesus times 1,000. It was an act of treason. Fitting for the followers of the one who said, my kingdom is not of this world. What if the whole world obeyed the teachings of the Lord Jesus? You see, I, I do believe in a spiritual atonement. I believe in the resurrection. I believe in the miracles. I believe. I believe it is His work, not ours, that ultimately saves us and saves the world. But here's what else I believe. I believe that it is our duty as faithful disciples of Christ to actually live out His calling. You see, He's not physically among us here Except to the extent that we are his body, that his followers are his physical presence in the world. We are the hands and feet of Christ. There is no one else who is going to carry this moral teaching into the world if we don't do it. So yes, let us celebrate with great joy the fact that the work of Christ covers all of our failings, that we could never on our own be made right with God. But let us not become complacent in enacting the law of love. This is, I think, what James means in his letter when he says that faith without works is dead, right? Remember that passage, Bible nerds? He says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but do not have works? By the way, Martin Luther wanted this book removed from the Bible. (laughs) It's not a joke. Martin Luther wanted to take this book out of the Bible because he thought it was too harmful to his central doctrine of justification by faith and not works. But he lost that one. (laughs) What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but do not have works? Can faith save you? If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, and eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what good is that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I by my works will show you my faith. So if you are basking in the joy of being saved by faith, I join you and I am excited for you and now you have to get off your ass and do some work. Mm, And said that in a sermon in a long time and it felt good. (laughs) Sorry kids. What does it look like for us to start to practice radical Christian love today? I'm not quite sure. It's one of those things where you have to put one foot in front of the other and do your best Here's my little bit of advice, though. And here we're departing from Scripture. This is just Scott saying this might work. (laughs) Try, Try not starting with ISIS. Try starting somewhere else than with the person in your past who is the most harmful, toxic person you ever knew, who did you the most damage, who to this day you cannot love and cannot bear to forgive. I think sometimes preachers jump way too quickly to the "whoever has harmed you, you must forgive them immediately." Yes, we are called to forgive as we've been forgiven, but let's start a little bit higher on the list. Let's start with the people who are a little bit easier to forgive. Let's there's, here's my practical pastoral advice: think of the most frustrating, annoying person you know, who you can still manage to actually love. You're choosing not to right now because they're a jerk. Start with that person, the neighbor who blasts loud music at all hours of the night while you're trying to study or sleep or your kids are taking a nap, the racist, homophobic uncle who you really only have to actively love twice a year, the office manager who seems like she's making it her goal in life to ruin your day 40 hours a week. Right? I, I, I'm being a little bit silly, but I'm really not. I'm really not, because you can't get to the people who are way down on the list of difficult people to love until you can practice with the people who are at the top, who are a little bit easier to love. And here's the, the, here's the, the last truth about that that I would try to give you right now. I think it might actually be impossible to forgive those most horrible, toxic, harmful people in your life Absent the miracle of Christ. Absent the work of a true resurrection. So there's always going to be this tension, isn't there? His work is the work that really matters, not ours. But you cannot enact his work you cannot live into it you cannot benefit from it until you do a little bit of your own which is to step out in faith faith is not this blind obedience to some doctrine saved by faith that is not what it means so whatever justification by faith alone means it's not that faith means trust and belief and trust and belief are evidenced by stepping out and doing something It's not the doing that will save you. It's the doing that will give you faith. All right. Ultimately, it is his work that strengthens us for our work. His work is represented for you now here at the table of communion. It's interesting to me that in one place in the New Testament when Paul is describing communion, he says, come together and take the bread and the cup in remembrance as he he commanded. And he said, when you do this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's interesting to me that he doesn't say you proclaim the Lord's resurrection. Obviously, Paul believed in the bodily resurrection. Okay, It would be absurd to suggest otherwise. That's not what I'm saying. But Paul says that this sacrament proclaims his death. And why is that so important and so powerful? Because it is radical Christian love. When he went to his death, it was an act of radical love. And that is what we proclaim when we come to receive his body and his blood as our own, as food for our souls. And so, my friends, the table is open to you now. To all who would seek to step out in faith. To all who want more of Jesus. To all who want his strength. His work to empower you to do your work. Which is more of his. This table is open to you. Our musicians will come back up. We have a couple more songs to sing together. And as we're singing, I invite you to come and receive this beautiful blessed sacrament. Tear off a piece of the bread, remembering his body broken for you. Dip it in the wine or the juice, remembering his bloodshed for the remission of sins. While we're taking communion and singing together, if you'd like to receive prayer with our prayer team, there'll be a member of the team up here. I don't think we have chairs right now. Why don't we set up in uh, one of the corners this morning, like that corner back there. Uh, If you'd like to receive prayer, you can just um, go to the corner and and receive it there. Uh, We have space in the room for that today. I have time. I would like to invite you to communion with these formal words that we used on Wednesday night because I think they're so beautiful. I won't do the whole thing, but this part always really moves me this is christ's invitation to you my friends come to this sacred table not because you must but because you may come to testify not that you are righteous but that you sincerely love our lord jesus christ and desire to be his true disciples come not because you are strong but because you are weak not because you have any claim on the grace of God, but because in your frailty and sin you stand in constant need of God's mercy and help. Come not to express an opinion, but to seek God's presence and pray for the Spirit. Come to the table. Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.